Welcome to History Talk, produced by Origins, a project of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the Department of History at The Ohio State University. We hope you enjoy what you find. Okay, this is Patrick Patyani, one of your History Talk co-hosts, and I'd like to welcome you to this month's podcast. It's safe to say there isn't much in the past four years that's created more political dissent than the Affordable Care Act. While this acrimony has built in recent memory, parts of this legislation are nothing new. As a recent Origins article explains, Obamacare's legacy can be traced back even to the First World War and the creation of a healthcare system for military veterans. Hello, I'm Leticia Wiggins, your other co-host today, and in this month's History Talk, we'd like to reconsider the health care policies that have preceded the Affordable Care Act, putting the current contentions in historic context. And we're lucky enough today to be joined by three experts, so I'd like to invite them all to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Tamara Mann. I'm a recent PhD in American history from Columbia University with a specialty in the history of old age and health policy, and I'm currently an associate at the Humanities Institute here at OSU. I'm Sandra Tannenbaum. I'm a professor in the College of Public Health. I'm a political scientist, and I teach health policy and politics. Hi, Stephen Kahn, and I'm a professor in the history department here at OSU and one of the editors of Origins Magazine. All right, thank you three for joining us today, and welcome. And so to begin, a question in constant consideration is a political one of, quote, is this system socialist? Has this always been a fear historically? And how has this fear stymied the creation of policies currently? Uh, and since I know you're chomping at the bit here, Steve, uh, we'll throw this question to you first. Sure. Yeah, it, it's a funny how, what a difference a little word can make. It's certainly the case that over the past 100, even 100 plus years, if you call anything socialist, that's the kiss of death in American public life. But that's not really, I think, the best way to think about it. The way to think about this is to, is to remember that the federal government has always been involved, certainly over the last century, in health care one way or another. In some ways, it's one of the most subsidized areas of American life since the late 19th and early 20th century. So it's not really a question of whether the government is going to be involved in the delivery of health care. It's really how it's going to be involved, and that's always been true. I would just like to add, though, I think the word socialism has worked very well for a very long time. And it's sort of remarkable why. So, you know, the AMA hired uh, advertising firm Whitaker and Baxter with the purpose to malign uh, the uh, national health insurance. They came up with the phrase socialized medicine and it just hasn't gone away. And the question is why? Why is it still such a powerful yeah. phrase? It doesn't really apply anymore. Yeah. It was especially potent just before Medicare was passed. Mm -hmm. um, after the Second World War, during the Cold War, calling something socialist had an extra oomph to it, yeah. and, and Medicare struggled to be passed um, under that moniker. Great. So to move on, much of this issue with the Affordable Care Act comes with the question of who is a public charge, as they'd say in this World War I era. So the Affordable Care Act marks a break away from the public charge model. So what do you think finally caused this shift away from it? And I'd like to direct this question to Tamara, um, and maybe to define also what a public charge would be in this case, too. Well, I think Jessica makes a really great point in her origins piece when she says, you know, the ACA marks a shift away from the 20th century model of offering individuals federal assistance based on membership in a clearly mm -hmm. definable group of citizens. So the ACA, I think this is a really interesting question because um, 
The designers of Medicare in the 1950s absolutely believed that this policy would be the first step towards national health insurance. Medicare would start an incremental approach that would eventually include all groups, like voting or even Social Security. So, you know, one way to read the ACA is that this finally happened. Another way to read it is that this step-by-step approach to federal health insurance arguably enhanced the power of private insurers and failed to ensure cost control mechanisms, created a financial crisis of such epic proportions that we needed something, and that the ACA was the best feasible option and the least amount of structural change. So I think these two ways of viewing the ACA is a way of explaining the difference. Of, of the direct delivery of health care to citizens through the creation of a veteran's health care program after the First World War, the definition here is it is is that there are a group of people who, because of a special category, are deserving of special treatment by the government. And so what evolved over the 20th century is the, gro- the, the growing set of boundaries around who gets to be considered a special category. And I think, yeah. so So that's how the, the evolution of the notion of a public charge, I think, has, has grown from the 19th century poor laws up through the 21st century ACA. Is that I would, fair? I would quibble a little bit with mm-hmm. the notion that the ACA leaves this public charge business okay. behind. One of the most important aspects of the ACA is the Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm which is very much a matter. So who's deserving is now in the states that are taking advantage of the expansion, who's deserving is now defined entirely by poverty level and not by membership in some other group like Mm -hmm. children or the elderly. But people under 138% of poverty are the new public charges. Now, yeah, the, the exchanges are a point. different are a different part of the right. ACA, and that has to do with insurance regulation. Mm-hmm. But there is this very substantial, and the Medicaid sign-up rates are very, very high. Right. So this is a really important addition to the public charge. Sure. Great. So related is this question of who is deserving of government help, and one creating a lot of debate, especially with those who say Obamacare is a, quote, disincentive to work. Are there instances of this concern obvious in the past, or is this a new phenomenon? And Sandy, we'll direct this question first to you. This is always a question. If you give mm-hmm. people something, they're going to stop working. Um, you know, the creation of bums is a very um, repetitive theme in all of our social policy in this country. So it's absolutely not. New. Yeah, and you know, I, I I teach a course in the 19th century, and you can find this rhetoric in the 19th century as well. Mm-hmm. So this this is a. A, a, dare I say it, a tired trope that, that gets trotted out fairly regularly that any kind of public assistance is necessarily going to create dependence and it's going to create laziness and so on can and so I, forth. Can I just jump in here? Because I wonder, I feel like it's an easy charge to dismiss for liberals. And, you know, Goldwater leveled this to people when they were starting to create Medicare. Yep. And his fear was basically this. If the government is taking over responsibility for the elderly, why won't children abandon their responsibility? And listen, there were state laws basically saying children yeah. had to take care of their parents. We're seeing it in Japan now. In China, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in China, I think also. I think what's interesting is it's very easy to dismiss it and say that's totally ridiculous, but there is a, a, the rise of nursing. There, there are moments in American history where you see that this is a real conflict, right. and I don't think it's fair to just dismiss it. And there might be a way we could 
more carefully invest ourselves in this question, Deb? I think that's a good point because that raises another piece of this conversation that I, at any rate, haven't heard much about in the four-plus years that we've had this debate over the ACA. And that is to say that those people who are an advocate of, of a national health program of one sort or another think health care is something we all need and deserve. Those people who have opposed it have trotted out a set of arguments about the marketplace or about individual responsibility or family responsibility and so forth. And I think what has, has, has gotten lost a little bit is that over the course of the 20th century, our expectations of what health care means have, have changed entirely so that 100 years ago, it is perfectly reasonable to expect families to take care of elderly and retired parents because the life expectancy was about 62 years old. Now the life expectancy is well into the 80s. We're seeing problems now that we've never really experienced. We have no uh, track record here. We have no experience dealing with Alzheimer's and, and all these other sorts of things. So our expectations have shifted, and that has, I think, also necessitated a change in our, how we access health care. In addition to which, I don't think there's much evidence that people abandon their elderly family members. The vast majority of... No, we just joked about it a lot. You know? yeah. <laughs> the vast majority of long-term care is provided by daughters and daughters-in-law yeah. who Absolutely. sometimes give up mm-hmm. their jobs, right. who have children in college. So I, I, I don't think... I mean, Goldwater may have worried no. about it, but I don't think there's much and I, no, evidence. And I, and, no, but I think that there was more of a... Um, I think people who were trying to support Medicare engaged with him at the, in the 50s and 60s. And I think what they said is, listen, we're giving this to middle-aged children. We want them to be able to support their parents. And I think just having that kind of engagement with the, is this is this going to promote self-reliance or is this paternalism is actually kind of helpful. And I don't think you see enough of it in the ACA yeah. debates. But I totally agree. I, mean, I completely agree with but that. But I, I, certainly during the, uh, the campaigns, both in 2008 and 2012, there were politicians who talked about the alternative to this program as being somehow the community would have a bake sale uh, when when somebody was uninsured. And, well, you know, if you have cancer and your bills are running $150,000, this is absurd. But that wouldn't have been the case 50 years ago, 100 years ago, because because medical technology, medical treatments have changed so dramatically uh, that that has necessitated a change in how we can pay for and access health care. In addition to which, our political system has created a health care system where the prices are so high yeah, yeah, and yeah. so much higher than everybody else's that even if the technology weren't more sophisticated, yeah, yeah, we have point. fed the higher and higher right. and higher prices. Elizabeth Bradley has a new book coming out on the healthcare paradox. And, you know, Ezekiel Emanuel came to campus mm-hmm. a few months ago and he gave, you know, he's like, we absolutely need the ACA because it's $2.8 trillion a year on healthcare. And that puts us just in the minority internationally. For other, like, you know, similarly developed countries, we're spending 30%, they're spending 99%. And then Bradley comes in and she basically says that our numbers are wrong and that what we should be looking at is the combination of healthcare spending and social services and treating basically healthcare spending outside of housing spending and you know preventative care and early mental health initiatives that if we actually evened out the numbers we're spending about 25% he calls it a national health investment countries like Sweden and England right. are spending 25%. And I was just wondering what you guys thought about that and if we're actually if we're actually kind of just going about this whole debate a little bit off and a little bit wrong. Well, I think what you're saying, what she's saying is true, and they get a big bang for their buck that we don't. So we create problems 
with our lack of social spending that sometimes we then fix in the expense of healthcare system. Yeah. Sure, if you were to even out, you know, what is our safety net? Uh, we wouldn't look we wouldn't look like such a big spender. And we have the results to prove it. I'm wondering, is this part of the ACA's plan to kind of reduce costs is trying to get at some of those kind of preventative measures that President Obama has highlighted from time to time? Is that part of to try to cut off some of that higher spending later in life? Well, the Congressional Budget Office refused to score any of the preventive measures in the ACA because the evidence that it will actually save money is too weak, at least for the bean counters, to say. I think the cost issue, not to take uh, exception to Zeke Emanuel, but I think the cost issue in the ACA is hardly dealt with. I think it's a coverage bill. I, I totally don't think agree. it's a cost containment bill. I think that conflation is something that really goes back to, you know, Jessica's article on Veterans Health and Medicare, which is we've conflated for a very long time in this country health care and health coverage. So that we are we had an argument that we were talking about health care leading up to the ACA, and I totally agree. We were really talking about health coverage. Well, and again, the question of cost is not an absolute question. It it ought to be considered relative to outcomes. And so if two point eight trillion dollars gets you the outcomes, the health outcomes you want, then it's a perfectly appropriate amount of money to spend. If it doesn't get you the outcomes that you want, <laughs> then then it's not an appropriate money amount of money to spend. That, no, that has to be balanced in here as well. Great. Well, I know that um, this has already been hit on in some, in some ways with the last question, but we were wondering also how do health benefits for the elderly tie into the debates, both past and present, over the federal role in health care and reducing policy? The elderly are excused uh, because they don't work. So Deborah Stone says that every society is divided into a work-based sector and a need-based sector. And where you draw the line is individual to that society. Who gets resources on the basis of need? Who gets resources on the basis of work? The elderly pretty traditionally have been in that we don't expect you to work anymore, um, at least at some age. Maybe it won't be 65 much longer. But So I would say that the elderly are pretty much outside the ACA, and they're pretty much settled as a deserving I mean, not every member of Congress would agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, well, I'll, oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, no, I'll just say, although, you know, the, the, poli the policy crafters of Medicare you basically used the elderly. Right. I mean, they wanted national health insurance. This was supposed to be an incremental approach. The elderly were supposed to be the first group. Children were supposed to be next. And this idea of lifting up the elderly forever in American society as a special group I don't even know. I don't really think that was the intention. And I do think that the ACA, is, in some ways, is a reaction to some of the early problems with Medicare, which were no cost cutting mechanisms. Really, I mean, incredible health care. I mean, the health care costs just skyrocketed after Medicare. But now I think the great news is Medicare is being used. We don't have a public option anymore in the ACA. And Medicare is really the think tank, I think, for cost control mechanisms now. If they don't do something about yeah. prices, I mean, yeah. the one, the CBO said that the one prayer for cost containment, and here Medicare is very yeah, important, is, is the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which may be repealed because there's a lot of um, congressional objection both on both sides of the aisles. And this is a panel that, an appointed panel that isn't running for office where the healthcare community is raising funds for the for the run, um, this independent panel will make 
um, reimbursement changes, and Congress has a very small window to undo what this panel does. And so Congress is irate because they've had a responsibility removed from from their plate. Mm -hmm. But this was the one possible cost-saving mechanism in the mind of the CBO. But, you know, I also, I, I would just interject that if you take Medicare and Social Security a generation earlier, also targeted at the elderly, the retired, as a package, it worked in the sense that in the 1930s, the single poorest demographic subgroup in American life were those people over 60. That isn't true anymore. Alas, it's children under five now. But the, the point is here, here was a set of programs designed to attack that particular problem, the problem of the impoverished elderly, and it succeeded in creating a, a, a much more prosperous retired population uh, and one that now lives considerably longer. Unfortunately, that package took 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. It was to it put was, together. That's correct. That's and, correct. And I don't think it worked right away. I mean, the great moment was in 72 when Nixon lifted the um, 20% rise in monthly benefits. I think until then, mm -hmm. what? Mm -hmm. but, but I think it also reminds us that it takes a long time to get the policy right. Yes, I think I mean, that's exactly and I think right that's a, as well. I think that's very optimistic. Like, and I think Johnson understood that entirely yeah. with Medicare, was that it didn't matter really for him all the details in this bill. He was going to get this bill through, and then we were going to fix it later. And, and it has been tweaked and poked at and, and so forth. Building on the conversation here, part of the comprehensive health insurance reforms includes claims of lower health care costs and also claims to guarantee more choices to quality care. Um, in Jessica Adler's piece, the government health care provided for World War I veterans was portrayed at the time as less of a choice than as a necessary crutch. What does this element of potential choice currently bring to the, to the table? Um, and let's have Steve take on this question first. What interested me about the debate over healthcare choice as this bill was being proposed and then fought over was the idea that a national health program of any kind was necessarily going to take consumer choice away, somehow that the government was going to make this decision for you. And what I found really remarkable about that particular line of argument was that it did not acknowledge that choices were already being made for all of us in private insurance programs already. We didn't have that kind of choice that was that they were pretending we had. And, and so the threat that it was somehow going to be taken away struck me as, as very hollow. I think that the, um, the you know, the, the question of choice is deeply important to Americans as we view healthcare as yet another of our consumer options. But I'm actually a little troubled by the idea that we ought to treat it that way, that really all we are are healthcare customers. We're not actually patients. I think when you reduce the interaction here to the consumer transaction, I think you run some risks that, that are I'm uncomfortable with. I think you have to make a distinction between choice of insurance and choice of provider. Yes. Um, the ACA is actually creating economic incentives, financial incentives for healthcare organizations to limit your choice of provider. Um, and the only people who will have more choice are people who can buy on the exchange, and that's not everybody and people whose state-level exchanges are rich with options. And, yeah. and that's not every exchange. So I think I'm not sure how much choice the ACA gives you. And I also think getting rid of the public option got rid of a right. major a choice. choice. I mean, your choices are now private insurance, private insurance, private insurance. Yeah. 
And you also, Sandy, bring up an, another peculiarity when we compare this to other systems in other developed nations that any system in this country has to be done 50 different times because insurance is regulated at the state level, not at the federal level. So we've got 50 different versions of this that have to play out. That also strikes me, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in federalism or anything like that, but it strikes me as tremendously inefficient to have to have what you do in Montana is not the same thing you do in Idaho, which is not the same thing you do in Washington State. And don't forget the 52 Medicaid programs, yeah, every one sure, of which is sure, different. Sure, 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 right. I brought in this Atul Gawande croak because I loved it so much because it basically, he's trying, he's trying to make a case for the ACA in 2012, even though it's obviously such a Band-Aid on a complex possibly dysfunctional system. And he goes, uh, yes, the American healthcare is an appallingly patched together ship with rotting timbers, water leaking in, mercenaries on board, and 15% of the passengers thrown over the rails just to keep it afloat. But hundreds of millions of people depend on it. <laughs> That's a great visual. I thought it was a really great. That's right, there you go. Many for their incomes as well as their healthcare. Right. We just would like to thank the three of you. We'd like to thank Steve, um, Sandy, and Tamara for joining us today. Um, it's been a really great discussion about the ACA, so thank you all of you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breitvogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our website manager and technical advisor is Mitchell Shelton. Our audio editors and co-hosts are Patrick Patiani and Leticia Wiggins. Find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu. Thank you for listening.